name is uh, Bjorklund Gordon. Could you state your full name for the record and also spell your first and last names? Natalie K. Bjorklund Gordon, N-A-T-A-L-I-E, K for Kim, uh, Bjorklund, B-J-O with an umlaut, R-K-L-U-N-D, Gordon, G-O-R-D-O-N. Do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do. So help you God. Um, I have your, a copy of your CV here. Um, I understand that you have degrees in, uh, in science, a PhD from the Department of Biochemistry and Medical Genetics from the University of Manitoba. Is that right? Uh, the biochemistry degree that I did was uh, in the um, microbiology and chemistry at University of Manitoba, and my PhD was in the Department of Human Genetics. Okay. Um, I understand that, would it be fair to say you have an expertise in epidemiology as well as public health and biostatistical analysis? Yes, my work involved uh, about three-quarters of the same type of coursework that is done in, for those training in public health. There's a lot of overlap between human genetics and public health. And uh, I also did my education on a part-time basis because I had small children, so I took a lot of uh, courses um, on a slower basis, and I accepted positions, uh, contract positions, and short-term and long-term administrative assistant positions, teaching and um, additional private work for physicians as part of paying for my education. So I prepared grants um, in ethics, and I did statistical analysis for physicians, and I also tutored medical students. And as part of my PhD program, I taught medical students uh, genetics and statistics. Great, so we have your CV, it's um, exhibit WI1 for the record. I don't know if the commissioners have seen it, I can, if we can add that to the record, but. Uh, What's that? Oh, um, can you swear, Ms. Bjorklund uh, Gordon, that the CV is a true copy of your yes, CV? Yes, I swear that that is a true copy yes. of my and you CV. Okay. Um, now, I understand that you have uh, prepared a slideshow. Yes. Uh, this is to keep me on track, and yes. um, I'll, I'll try not to run over time. Um, I consider this more a personal testimony, so if at any point something I've said is not clear or uh, you wish to in interrupt to ask for clarification, please do so. This is a less formal presentation. Very good. So uh, can we have the... There we go. Okay. So um, this is about my concerns as an expert, and um, we've already gone over my uh, qualifications. I would like to point out that I have 17 peer-reviewed publications, um, and uh, I've published one book in embryology, and I have a second book in pre preparation. So I'm semi-retired. I'm not part of the academic community anymore, but I am still working as a scientist and producing um, quality material that is considered part of the scientific literature. So if you were to summarize what my work has always been about, uh, this very complicated picture which comes from my book is a whole bunch of proteins and how they interconnect with each other and how signals go from the top of the cells down into the nucleus of the cell and result in changes in gene expression. 
this interacting biochemical complicated system is present in all the cells of our bodies and work that way. And all of us have uh, genes for each of these proteins, and there are individual variants of the genes within the population that can make them more or less efficient. And that is the main reason why we need to do a lot of epidemiology and statistical analysis, because studying any one of these proteins is an entire PhD project all by itself. So you can't do this in isolation. You have to be able to examine the literature and see what everyone else is doing and put all the pieces together. So my awareness of the pandemic began in January of 2020. I was hearing news reports that were concerning to me. Uh, when I was in my final year as a biochemistry undergraduate, I did a project in virology. My mentor was working on um, the mRNA viruses. And so I had a very intense interest in virology and in pandemics, and I almost considered that as a career choice. I ended up going into human genetics instead for other reasons, but I followed it very, very closely. And by mid-February 2020, given the reports we were reading, my husband and I became concerned enough that we went into town and stocked up on large amounts of food, uh, plastic sheeting, medical things for isolation, because we were really beginning to think that it was going to be a very serious pandemic. Um, at the end of February, my husband and I both became ill, and um, as it happened, we had a friend whose mother-in-law came to visit from China. Uh, before she left China, she um, was visited by relatives from Wuhan, and the relatives from Wuhan had colds when they arrived, and she felt sick during her trip and initially put it down to jet lag, and eventually a very nasty flu circulated in our community, and my husband and I both became quite ill. I was sick for five days, basically bedridden. My husband was not as sick as that, but um, I contacted public health thinking that um, quite possibly we had the Wuhan virus because by my understanding of contact tracing, we had a direct connection with symptomatic people to um, Wuhan where the pandemic was originating but we were told we were not eligible for the PCR testing. And I also found the PCR testing to be puzzling because I've done PCR myself. Um, one of the labs I worked at, we had a full-time technician who did nothing but PCR, and that was his specialty, and he was noted for being able to get consistent, excellent results, which is something that's normally very hard to do. And I couldn't really understand how a PCR test could be being used as a diagnostic test I figured maybe, well, I've been out of academic, academia in the lab for, you know, five years, ten years, whatever it was at that point, and maybe they had some new technology that I wasn't familiar with. But it was shocking to me that the airports were still open, people were still coming and going at this point, and there was no real contact tracing going on, and I felt, I, I, I couldn't understand why, why this was happening. I, I, I just, it didn't make any sense to me. It contradicted what I understood. Shortly after we both recovered, my husband developed what we now know to be consistent with COVID toes. His toes looked blue and bruised. And um, he woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning, got up and collapsed on the floor, and it turned out that he'd had a right lateral pontine stroke. And um, he ended up in the hospital. Fortunately, my dog woke me up, my wonderful dog. And... Um, we called an ambulance. He was taken in, and um, my husband's quite a bit older than me, so at the time he was 78, which would have made him very high risk for this kind of complication from the virus. 
uh, while we were in there, the staff were wonderful. I stayed with him most of the time I, that, that he was in there. It was very um, patient-centered. I was very happy with the care he got. I mentioned to the doctors I thought that um, his stroke was related to the virus because I had been reading already about neurological effects from the virus, but the doctors kind of poo-pooed it and they said it's not COVID. Um, COVID isn't in Manitoba yet and COVID is a lung disease, not, not a neurological disease. I didn't argue with them. It wouldn't have affected my husband's care. Uh, the last Thursday that he was in hospital, um, I was very alarmed by what I was hearing about lockdowns and I decided I needed to get my husband out of the hospital. And um, the staff was initially resistant. They wanted to send him off for rehab. Um, they wanted to move him from Dauphin to Nipawa where I had family to stay with so he could have a longer recovery. I was becoming very, very frightened about him being locked up in the hospital and I was beginning to hear stories about the spread of the virus um, in nursing homes and I decided I was going to get him out of the hospital no matter what. And then the last Thursday before he was released, uh, which was right before when the lockdown started, um, I recall sitting in the room with him across from the nursing station and a bunch of men with suits and clipboards came in and there was a lot of conversation and everything changed in the tone of the hospital. All the staff became frightened, rushed and they went out of their way to help me get my husband out of the hospital. So an occupational therapist and physiotherapist came in and worked with me for a couple of hours, and the very next morning out we went and I took him home. And then the lockdowns happened, and it, that was an incredibly difficult period for me because my husband was recovering from a stroke, and I had no help of any kind from the government. I couldn't talk to the doctor. There was no physiotherapy, there was no occupational therapy. Now, a right lateral pontine stroke, patients can make a complete recovery from that particular type of stroke in about six months, but only if they receive intensive therapy. And there was no way to do it. Now, I spent over $1,000 purchasing equipment to, to take him home. And then after we were home, in order to get him the therapy he needed, we spent another $1,000 buying a... Um, specific design computer game called um, Fit Me that would allow him to do the therapy at home. My daughter um, had an undergraduate degree in kinesiology and she worked with me looking at YouTube videos and so forth so that we could come up with a therapy program for him. And our nurse across the street, um, who was a very dear friend, violated the rules of the lockdown and came over and um, helped take his blood pressure, make sure he took his medication. And during this period, I, I really wondered, I had resources, education, and funding to take care of my husband in this position. What was happening to all the other people who were dealing with something like this in the middle of this lockdown? And everything about it felt just wrong, wrong, wrong. And it was initially gonna be only 14 days to flatten the curve. That didn't make any sense because what was gonna happen when the 14 days were up? How was it gonna help? And then it became another week, and then another week, and another week. And the community that I live in is a very small community. Um, after we retired, we moved into uh, Alonso, Manitoba. There's about 73 people, if you count the dogs. And it, it was a very tight-knit community and a farm community. And all of the seniors were basically abandoned. Uh, their families weren't allowed to come and visit them. They didn't know how to use computers. I helped some of them to set up computers so they could maintain contact with their family, but it was a nightmare to see 
people. They were depressed, they were angry, they were frightened, and they were so isolated. And this was a very tight-knit community where families were always getting together and everybody looked out for the elders. And all of a sudden, all of that changed. Ms. Uh, Bjorkling Gordon, can I just sure. ask you one, one point here? I, I understand you did have some expertise in virology or you had studied that. Yes. Uh, and I think regarding the, the COVID-19 respiratory disease, you had some understanding of how that disease was spread. And yes, that's correct. Yeah. And um, I was very disappointed with the government because I had had some very peripheral involvement in setting up the standards for pandemic response that would occur um, from the SARS-1 vi virus outbreak. And it seemed like the pandemic response I expected to see from the government didn't happen. They suddenly went off on a new tack that was completely different from, from everything I understood that was appropriate. The only country that I knew of that was following what I felt were, based on my training, appropriate pandemic responses at that time was Sweden. And why do you, why do you say that? Because they weren't doing proper isolation and contact tracing and they were locking down healthy, normal people instead of just the symptomatic. And it, it felt more like a punishment than, than a way to stop the virus. And the other thing about it was the intense fear that they were putting into everyone. By this point, it was fairly obvious from the data coming out that this was a nasty bug and it did kill people. But it wasn't really much nastier than the common flu. And you just don't terrorize an entire population with stories of people dropping dead because of the flu. And it didn't make any sense. It, it just, it didn't make sense. Can I ask you, um, do you think it's reasonable to try to tackle a respiratory virus using lockdown? No. Restrictions of that nature? You cannot eradicate a respiratory virus. At that time we were told that this was a virus that came out of an animal reservoir. If you have a virus in an animal reservoir that occasionally crosses over to humans, you're not going to be able to eliminate it ever. It's just something you're going to have to live with. And yet they were approaching this response to this virus as if they could eradicate it in the human population. And that made no sense to me either. Of course, we now know it probably came out of the lab and maybe at that time they knew it and that's why they did it. I don't know. Now, I think you said you were familiar with mRNA technology, is that right? Yes. And what were your thoughts about that? leading uh, up to uh, what we saw happen in, uh, with, with the development of the vaccines. I was puzzled by the use of the, M the PCR as a diagnostic technique. I was also puzzled by, um, I heard that they were doing 44 cycles of PCR and based on my understanding, um, that's far too high and you're gonna get an enormous number of false positives. At some point, the CDC had also made two different standards uh, for, for looking at different um, populations that were being affected by the virus. So they were using 44 cycles for the general population as a diagnostic tool, but in other situations they were using 17 cycles so that they could be very sure that they weren't getting a false positive. So the way they used the PCR test guaranteed that huge numbers of people were going to be diagnosed as having COVID who didn't have COVID uh, or who had flu or who had something unrelated. Oh, that was my opinion. So, okay, regarding the, uh, the development of the Pfizer vaccine, um, did you have any thoughts about um, how, they, how that was developed? 
given okay, your familiarity. Well, I, yeah, go ahead with that. If I carry on, I just yeah, tell that uh, I chose not to take the RM, the mRNA treatment for a very specific reason. The government was telling thing, me things that didn't make any sense to me. For example, they they were saying that the government of Manitoba, I'm referring to now, that the um, this vaccine would not stop transmission, but we all had to have it to stop the pandemic. And that was nonsensical to me. Uh, they said the vaccine stays in your arm. So you're going to inject something into highly vascularized muscle in your arm with connections through the lymph system, but it's going to stay in your arm and it's not going to stay in your arm. Uh, they said that the mRNA could not be reverse transcribed into DNA because that's not the way cells work. Well, it's nonsense. Most of the time it's DNA, RNA, protein. But particularly when cells are rapidly dividing, you can get the mRNA back into the DNA. So I was concerned about how that was going to work. I was also concerned about the mRNA technology as a whole because we'd been hearing about mRNA technology and the great miracles that it was going to do for uh, at least 15 years before. And to my perspective, it had not lived up to its initial promise. Um, we heard stories uh, that were discussed in group seminars that um, uh, there was a young man who had cystic fibrosis and they were going to use mRNA injections in an adenovirus in his particular situation as an experimental treatment to try to cure his cystic fibrosis. And everything looked right. All of our knowledge and everything showed us that this would have been the right thing. Now, I was not personally involved in this. This is just reports I heard from other scientists who were involved. And this young man accepted the risk. He was informed that it was experimental. He took the, the, the drug and he was dead in 24 hours. And they had no idea why he died. And to me, the mRNA technology was a failed technology. And the reason it failed was not because the ideas were wrong, but because we don't understand enough about how cells work to be able to guarantee that the, that the mRNA was going to work the way it worked. And that really bothered me. And I also wondered, how do they control how much of this spike protein is going to be produced? And how is um, the, this spike is the infective portion of the virus, and it's what binds to the receptors. And if you recall my very complicated diagram, when you have something bind to a receptor up at the surface level, it's going to send massive numbers of biochemical signals all over the place. So um, why were they using the spike as the thing they were going to inject with you with? And why were they using this strange new technology when we already have a whole vaccine technology that we have used successfully? It, it, it just didn't make any sense. And I'm not an anti-vaxxer. Uh, as, as a medical person, I have been vaccinated far more than the average member of the general public. All my children were vaccinated. I had to attend autopsies, so I had extra vaccines that the general public aren't even offered. I had the Shingrix vax. I got the flu vax every year. I am not an anti-vaxxer. I just, everything about this bothered me. And then I decided, well, maybe I'm crazy. Maybe the government knows what they're doing. So. I decided to pull up the Pfizer um, EUA memorandum more, um, on, on the drug itself and, and have an actual look at their statistics. And I recall reading it, and as I was reading it, I literally felt the hairs on the back of my neck start rising. 
there were so many things that were wrong with this. There were four cases of Bell's palsy um, in the, the case group that weren't in the control group. And Bell's palsy is a neurological condition, and you can't miss that because the person's whole face looks like. So that indicated to me that, that, that this could mean that this virus was having neurological effects. And if you look at, at uh, table two, page 18 of that, there were 311 cases and 60 placebos that were excluded for protocol deviations. Now, a properly conducted study, those two numbers should be identical. You shouldn't have five times as many people who are excluded for protocol deviations. That's just wrong, and that shows there's something seriously wrong with your study. And, and they didn't comment on that. And I recall thinking at the time, what was the protocol deviation? Did these people die? Because there was no explanation. And the demographics were wrong. They were doing this on younger people, not older people. They made this dismissive little paragraph about uh, antibody-dependent enhancement and how it wasn't a problem. Every time that there has been an attempt to have a um, coronavirus uh, vaccine, it has created this problem of antibody-dependent enhancement. And that means that the second time and the third time that you get the infection, the antibodies interact with the binding protein and cause it to bind more readily, so you end up getting sicker, not better, from, from being exposed to the vaccine. And all Pfizer had was this little statement that uh, we, uh, we did some non-laboratory ex uh, experiments with no explanation as to what those was, and they had just ruled it out as a possibility. And I was also disturbed because they were using relative risk, not absolute risk. Um, they didn't actually say what they were using, but it was obvious from the way it was being phrased and what they were doing that they were using a relative risk, not absolute risk. And relative risk, if you pick your population carefully and you have a low infective rate in your population, uh, you can make it look like you've got really, really good efficacy, but it's meaningless because so few people in either side got infected. And um, these were things that bothered me, and I decided um, that the last thing that bothered me the most was they had this one person, a 36-year-old male, who had no medical comorbidities and who developed what appeared to be full-blown COVID the next day after having his shot. And the symptoms began on day two, and Pfizer attributed it to one of three things, a false negative COVID, an infection process, or an adverse vaccine reaction. To me, that said, their spike protein that they were injecting people with was giving people COVID. And um, I noticed as well that in their report, more people in their control group than in their vaccine group were getting it. Now, it was not a statistically significant difference, 409 versus 287. But if I had been in charge, I would have immediately said, we need a much bigger group and we need to rule out this as, a, as an adverse side effect. And based on that, I decided I was not getting the vax, the vax. And then came the vaccine passports, and those were absolutely repugnant to me because they violated everything that I believed was ethical. That you just don't do that to people. You just don't say that you're gonna you get this shot or 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 else. And I mean, I was banned from attending social events. I couldn't go play curling at the curling center anymore. I suffered direct discrimination in health and dental care from people. I, I had a, a dental hygienist ask me why I wasn't vaccinated. 
And um, I was waiting for a referral to an allergist because I've had anaphylactic reactions. So I just said, I'm still waiting for a referral to an allergist. And she said to me, well, since this is an innocent and real reason for you not taking the vax, I'll go ahead and do this. But if you were just refusing the vax because you don't want to do this and you don't want to do your responsibility, I wouldn't clean your teeth. So that's the kind of discrimination that was going on. My eight-year-old grandson, I went to visit him, even though it was a violation of the lockdown rules, and he refused to hug me. And he, he started to run to me, and he stepped back, put his arms behind his back, and I said, what's wrong? Don't you want to give Grandma a hug? And he says, Grandma, I can't. My teacher says, if, if I hug you, you'll die because you're unvaccinated. <laughs> what they did to children was such a disgrace. And I found myself suffering depression and anxiety to the point where I even began having fleeting thoughts about killing myself. And at that point, I decided, this is really bad. You know, we can't continue down this path. And um, I went and adopted this little kitten. And she kind of changed everything because she didn't care who was vaxxed and who wasn't. And I could cuddle her and I could hug her. And, uh, and I took her to visit my grandson and he was playing with her. And, and by the end of the time that he was playing with her, he was hugging me again. So... The kitten changed everything for us. Then my daughter decided she had to get vaccinated because she needed to fly for her work, and if she didn't fly, um, she wouldn't have a job. And she took uh, Moderna Vax. Um, I should state uh, that I did not do much investigation into the Moderna Vax. I, I looked mostly at Pfizer. Uh, my rationale was that they were both the same basic technology, so what I had learned about the Pfizer vax probably applied to Moderna. And she had a very severe reaction, and it began eight hours after um, her shot, and by 12 hours afterward, she began to worry she was actually dying. Um, she had many, many symptoms. She called that when, when you went and got vaccinated in Manitoba, you got this information thing, and there was a number you were supposed to call if you felt you were having an adverse reaction. And she called them, and she got someone uh, on the other end, and this person said, you can't possibly be having a vaccine reaction because I have a list of the things that the vaccine does, and that isn't it. So you must have been exposed to COVID and been incubating COVID before you got the vax, and you're only getting your COVID symptoms now. And they said, do not call an ambulance, do not go to the hospital, because you don't want to risk the healthcare workers. Stay home, self-isolate for 14 days. I think that she would have died, except for the fact that with us being allergic people, we had medications and things in the house so she could treat herself at home. And I wonder how many Canadians died at home because they followed that advice. This led me to examine the 14-day rule. See, she was told that she didn't have an adverse reaction. She had a, um, uh, she had COVID. And all across Canada, it was 14 days, zero to 13 days. If you got sick, it wasn't the vaccine. 21 days in Saskatchewan and uh, BC, I'll have to point out. And I started trying to investigate this, and I found this on the Alberta Health page. I couldn't find any good explanation for the 14-day rule um, anywhere else, but this was the best I could find. This came off uh, the Alberta Public um, Health Services page. And um, um, I'll just go through this in a little more detail. I w I've been accused when I've brought this image up of um, lying and creating it myself. So 
uh, for that purposes. Here's two links that prove uh, Joey Smalley was another independent investigator who found the same thing and posted about it, and that's the link. Uh, when people began asking questions about this, Alberta Health Services took it off their website, but they forgot about the Wayback system. So I already had a copy. Joey was able to have a copy. I was able to go get a copy from, from way back. And if you look at this particular blow-up of the um, upper left-hand corner of that, you can see that there is a huge surge in the people who got infected with COVID immediately after they got their shots. And um, if you go a little further, you can see that a number of people ended up in the hospital after getting their shots during that 14-day period, particularly the older people, the 75-day, because this has been broken down by age group. And if you look at who died, it really hit hard in the community, 75 plus. Um, so people were getting their shot, they were getting sick, they were ending up in the hospital, and they were dying in the hospital, and they were being counted as COVID in the unvaccinated. And I think a lot of these were not COVID in the unvaccinated. I think that they were um, adverse vaccine reactions. I have to put a caveat in there. I wrote to Alberta Public Health and asked for more details over what pop period of time did this occur, how many people were involved, what percentage was it, and they never responded to any of my requests. This really made me think that we shouldn't be vaccinating the elderly, and I came across this particular paper where Norway investigated a series of deaths uh, in what they called the fragile elderly population. Um, these were 80-plus people who were in long-term nursing care, and um, they went in and vaccinated everybody, and a whole large segment that they vaccinated died. So Norway began recommending not vaccinating fragile elderly people. Now, I tried to do my own little analysis, and this is excess deaths in Manitoba. The blue line represents what was expected, and the orange line represents the published data that's come out of Manitoba. Now, these are not COVID deaths. These are excess deaths, the number of deaths above that that would be expected. And I put in there the various points in time when certain parts of the mandate system came into effect. And my data is incomplete. I wrote to the government of Manitoba and asked them for more data, and they either completely ignored every request I made or... One time I got a phone call back saying that if I put in an access to information formal request in writing, they would provide the data in the anonymized form that would protect privacy, but it would take them two years to do it because they were very busy with COVID and it would cost me $10,000. So basically they made it impossible for um, a private citizen like me to, to look at their data. But you can see spikes in excess deaths that occurred as each of these mandates came in and people went streaming in and began um, getting shots. So when the youth sport mandate came in, there was a large spike in excess deaths. And again, I think without being able to say for sure that this indicates it was possibly all adverse vaccine reactions that were going on, but there were also things like lockdowns and stuff that were causing excess deaths. Now, this particular picture here is important because 28 days after the first jab and uh, 28 days after the second jab are marked on here. And you can see there's a, there's a dip where nothing happens, and then there's um, a big, a little lump, and then it kind of calms down, and then there's this great big spike. And um, what I think is going on is based again on what happened to my family. One of my family members ended up in the St. Boniface cardiac care unit, 38-year-old female with young children. Uh, she developed pericarditis. 
Her pericarditis occurred more than 28 days after her last jab and therefore was considered unrelated to the COVID jab by the definitions that were being used by public health. So her cardiologist told her, don't get another booster. Um, I'm seeing this, I think it's the jab, but um, I can't give you an exemption if the government starts mandating boosters because I'm not allowed to. The only ones that are allowed to are certain specific, uh, very limited numbers of people. Um, and there was only one cardiologist in all of Manitoba who was allowed to give exemptions. And she wouldn't get it anyway because he never gave anybody exemptions. She's still having uh, symptoms to this day. And then my family got hit again. My son, my eldest son, had a benign brain tumor that was about two centimeters. It was discovered when he was 16 and had a head injury. And um, uh, he had another head injury again, and it was scanned again. These are familial in my son's uh, father's family, uh, some of his cousins, and um, his, uh, identical, his father has an identical twin brother who had one of these. They're benign tumors. They don't go anywhere. They just sit there. And all of a sudden, his started growing. So five months after he had his second Pfizer injection, his um, tumor had grown from two centimeters to 4.5 centimeters, and he had a seizure. And um, he had to go in and um, have a craniotomy. They split his head open and cut a chunk of his brain out. Uh, he was diagnosed as having um, an anaplastic oligodendroma with the MRI signature of 119, uh, 1P19Q deletion, which is a specific type of um, uh, brain tumor, but only in the very center portion of the tumor, the rest of the tumor. Um, the, I, I read a lot of pathology reports over the years. I've never seen, like my son got copies of the pathology reports for me to read, and I've never seen it one, ones like the ones they were had with him. They sent his results off to four different pathologists around the world trying to interpret what was going on. And you could just read from what they were saying that this wasn't a typical tumor, this wasn't what they were used to seeing, and they didn't know why they were seeing it. Um, he's had seven MRIs since the surgery. They're clean so far. He just had another one yesterday. We're hoping again that the cancer won't recur and that he'll be okay. And um, being a uh, mom that I am, I also went into the literature and I found a whole lot of scientific support for the idea that um, the vaccine itself may be causing this to occur. Uh, there was a study from Poland um, that was done by exposing brain cancer cells and normal cells to the spike vaccine, and they noted a whole lot of um, biochemical changes and alterations. Um, that, that occurred after introducing the spike protein to these cells in an in vivo, but both in, in the laboratory, putting it in cell culture and seeing what happened to their patients. Uh, then the vaccine passport came along, uh, or, or when the vaccine passport came along, so uh, six members of my family, five of whom did not want to get the vax because they wanted to listen to their mom when their mom said, this isn't safe, don't do it but they felt that they were being coerced to do it or they would lose their job. My middle son told me he did a mental calculation and if he refused the vaccine, he would lose his job. His family would lose uh, their home. They would lose everything. And, um, but if he took the vax and he was okay, then they'd be fine. But if he took the vax and it killed him, he had a very good insurance policy at his work and he had disability and so forth. So his family was better off with him taking the chance. So that's why he took the vax. 
He, fortunately, so far, he hasn't shown any bad signs, but that was his rationale. So in my family, uh, my three children and their spouses, um, we had six members who, one refused the vax altogether, um, the rest, the other five had it. So we had um, two members affected seriously with health conditions that potentially are life-shortening, and one that could have died in the first few hours after the vax. So my son, um, he was in an artist, artist's rendition because he's a healthcare aide, he does patient transport in the hospital, that's the son with a brain tumor. He was out of work for four months uh, after his, his brain tumor before he could go back to work. And in the early parts of the pandemic, he was the big hero, but as soon as the vaccine passports came out, he was no longer the big hero. And that's an artist rendition of him and one of his coworkers dressing up to go take care of COVID patients uh, before the vaccine mandates turned the refusers and the anti-vaxxers into criminals. So my conclusion from all this is that adverse vaccine reactions are, are very common, they're not rare, and they include um, this anaphylaxis septic shock in the first few hours afterward. There are vascular effects that appear in the months following the shot. There are potentially neurological and cancer effects which require more research to understand. And one of the more frightening things to me that I have seen is that the, um, the vaccine, when it's injected, accumulates in the testes and the ovaries. Um, I am very concerned that we're going to find that a long, large portion of the people who got the vaccine are now infertile. And if that is the case, the way it's going to affect our population with the number of people in our population who have been vaccinated, it's going to make the one-child policy in China look like a church picnic. I mean, imagine 70% of Canadians got vaxxed and there isn't going to be any grandchildren or great-grandchildren. And I don't know if that's going to happen, and I hope and pray that it is not going to happen. But we don't know. Okay. So I'd just like to very briefly touch on the differences between public health and human genetics. The two of them work hand-in-hand, hand, but they have very different approaches. Public health is always top-down. The officials in public health, the experts decide what is good for us and they issue orders and then they try to get the public to follow through with them. In the 20s and 30s, um, eugenicists within the public health movement decided that 70% of the population of the USA was unfit to reproduce. That's in their literature. And I put this little note about William Randolph Hearst. He was a newspaper person at the time. And he decided, uh, he somehow got a hold of the, their documentation where they were discussing this. We need to find a way to sterilize 70% of the population of the USA because they're unfit to reproduce. And he wrote this really scathing editorial about them. And um, they came back at him and said, oh, you know, you're, you, the, you misunderstood it. You took it out of context. This isn't really what we were planning on doing. This is just speculation. And um, they didn't use the word conspiracy theory, but um, that's basically what they said. And um, these public health officials that were eugenicists, I'm not saying all public health officials were, I'm saying a portion of them who were eugenicists, um, they, uh, they did things like found elected representatives that cooperated with them in trying to bring in laws. They found lawyers that agreed with them. Uh, they had one particular case where both of the lawyers were actually working with the eugenicists trying to bring the law in, but one was pretending to be um, fighting against the uh, involuntary sterilization of one particular woman. And they ran that course right through to the Supreme Court in the United States. 
and they eventually won in the Supreme Court to have the right for public health to involuntarily sterilize uh, people that they deemed to be uh, unfit to reproduce because they were morons or epileptics, or and moron was a technical term at that time. And um, that ended with Nazi Germany because of the reaction of horror to what happened during the Holocaust. And that was also the birth of human genetics. And human genetics is a bottom-up. Uh, it's, not, it's not a top-down, it's bottom-up. So the geneticist who is dealing with something presents to the patient this is the problem, this is everything we know, here are all of your options. You are never supposed to say or do anything to try to influence your patient to choose one option or another. And then whatever patient, choice your patient as an individual makes, you never ever do anything except help them to achieve what their choice is based on their fully informed consent you don't coerce them, you don't lie to them, you don't give them personal anecdotes about how you feel. And these ethical standards, they were codified beginning with the Nuremberg uh, trials. Afterward, there have been other instances of places and times where um, disgusting things happen to individuals in the name of improving society, and each time the world has responded with these ethical standards. These are taught in schools. Um, they're designed mainly to prevent abuse of individuals by us experts. When I come in and say to you, I have a BSc in biochemistry and a PhD in human genetics and I think this is what you should do, I am exerting a great deal of influence on you because I as an expert have power over you. And so these ethical standards are designed to protect people from abuse by experts. So it is my opinion that the following ethical standards were violated during the pandemic. There was no risk-benefit analysis. Everybody got the same treatment. There was violation of the principle of utilitarianism where you use the minimum amount of treatment that you can to affect what you need to do. Locking down children who are at very low risk of COVID and vaccinating them is a violation of the principle of utilitarianism and so is locking down and closing a business or telling people they can't meet in a church. We were subjected to psychological manipulation, and we now know the military was involved in that. And I'll give you a very specific example of one form of manipulation uh, that I saw. My daughter and I were having a conversation. Um, it was during one of the breaks in between the lockdowns, and um, there were lots of conversations going on in the background. It was like, um, like a cocktail party. And during the course of our conversation, she said the word ivermectin, and behind us, the room went absolutely silent. Just silent. And then there was a chorus, horse paste, horse paste, horse paste, horse paste, and then all the conversations went back. And that to me is an example that people were being literally brainwashed to think if they heard the word ivermectin, they'd think horse paste. And if they could elicit that kind of reflexive response to a word like ivermectin, what other things were they doing to our heads? We don't even know how much they did. We don't even understand the depth and the length that they went to in their manipulation of us. Uh, our autonomy as individuals was totally violated. We were told where we were allowed to go, who we were allowed to meet, when we were allowed to meet, how often, and we were told you must take this injection in your body. So our, uh, our autonomy was violated. Our confidentiality rights were violated. When that passport came out and the um, 
community center started asking who had, you know, show me your proof of your vaccine so you can come into the community center. Well, within 24 hours, everybody in my town knew who was vaxxed and who wasn't. And the pressure was on immediately on us unvaxxed. I had a neighbor say on Facebook that he hoped that I would drop dead in a hospital parking lot, not allowed to go in and get medical care, and that I should be driven out of town because I had chosen not to be vaccinated. I had people who I thought were my friends walk up to me, notice who I was, and turn around and walk away. They were either afraid of me or they didn't want to have anything to do with me because I was one of the evil unvaxxed. And in a normal situation with medical choices, you don't know these things. So they violated our confidentiality in order to, to go after us. And they used enticement and coercion, and that is an absolute no-no. You can go back to the Nuremberg Code. You must never use enticement, which means things like offering a prize if you accept it, offering money. Uh, oh, now if you, if you agree, we will let you go out to... Um, to a, a restaurant to eat. That's a violate. That's an enticement. And they used coercion, no jab, no job. Well, that's about as big a coercion as you can get. So I also want to mention what I saw happening in the indigenous community. Where, where I live, um, the ebb and flow reserve is to the north and the Sandy Bay Reserve is to the south. And there was particular targeting of the indigenous community by so-called pandemic and coordinators. Pandemic coordinators went into each reserve and they set up clinics. Uh, the indigenous community was given much earlier and much broader access to the um, vaccine. So it was typically, uh, you know, if you were 40 and up and you could go and get the vaccine, it would be 30 and up if you were indigenous. Um, much more vaccine was delivered to these clinics than, um, than they needed. So they always had a great big excess. So every time there was a big clinic, uh, there would be excess vaccine, and rather than have the vaccine go to waste, they would call. They would say to everybody who was there, "Call your relatives, call, call your auntie, call, 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 call." And all the people in the community that you know, your friends and your relatives and things, um, they can all come in and get vaccinated too, even if they're not indigenous and even if they're not yet eligible. And uh, so, in the community that I live in, at least half of my neighbors and friends um, are treaty status. If they're not treaty status, they're probably Métis. And if they're not Indigenous or Métis, they probably are married to someone who's Indigenous and, and, and Métis. And by doing that, they were able to very rapidly get this vaccine out into the entire Indigenous community, far ahead of uh, the rest of the, the population. And um, they did it by doing, emphasizing special re re respect for your elders. Um, and they made personal home visits to people who were hesitant. Some of them came to me and asked me if I thought the vaccine was safe, and I gave them my reasons for thinking that it was not safe, and, and um, I always tried to be ethical and say, you know, this is your choice, this is what I found, this is what the government's saying, you make the decision. And um, some of my friends came back to me and said that the vaccine coordinator came to visit them in their home and brought the material with them to give them the vaccine right on the spot and told them that I was not the right kind of scientist to understand what was going on and that I was a dangerous anti-vaxxer spreading misinformation and they should not listen to me and urging them right then and there in their homes to get the vax. And to me that violates, again, all kinds of ethical principles. You're slandering and preventing opposite opinion. You're putting pressure on people. When you go into somebody's home and offer them basically, you know, I'm here. Let's do it now. Why are you listening to this? Is, this is coercion.
And I still don't understand why the Indigenous community was so particularly targeted, but given in the history of Canada and what they've done to the Indigenous community, I have to wonder, was it necessarily because they had the best interests of the Indigenous community? I don't know. So I have some specific recommendations that I would like to make that would help prevent this from happening again. Uh, Florida's instituting laws like making it illegal to deny elderly visitors. Uh, one of my friends, her mother had a stroke. She ended up in a nursing home. She says that her mother died of loneliness from being locked up for months. Uh, there should be absolute laws that end the ability of public health to shut down businesses uh, for precautionary purposes. I mean, if public health wants to go in and shut down a restaurant because it's full of cockroaches and the patrons are getting listeria, fine, that, that should go ahead and be allowed. But they should never again be allowed. That power has to be taken away from them. They've proven that they will abuse it. And I'll also mention at this point that public health is very much a closed shop and you don't get a job in the government and public health unless you have a mentor or you yourself have also worked in the WHO and the, um, the UN. So the people in public health um, have a vested interest in what is going on at the level of the UN and, and the WHO, not just what is going on with the local community and um, uh, Canadian tra traditions, laws, and, and that kind of thing. And we have to strip them of their power. They can never have this again. went too far. Go back one. Um, we have to have protection for healthcare professionals and journalists who are acting in good conscience. Um, I had doctors who privately asked me my opinion, knowing my expertise. They listened carefully. They would not say anything. And they told me if they said anything, they would be have their licenses suspended. But they thanked me for speaking out. Um, these people need to be protected. These professional associations should not have the right to take away a license uh, because somebody says something the government doesn't like. The fact that I was denied the access to the raw data that I needed to do an independent analysis is another thing. We have to remove the need for these um, access to information acts and the huge fees involved. The raw data should be made available to the public. You can anonymize it so you're not going to give away pub private information of any individual, but that anonymized raw data should be available immediately so that independent experts like me, like Joey Smalley, can pull that data out and look at it and challenge the government whenever anything like that is going on. And there should be independent experts that are added to all of these committees and these groups that make the decisions about the safety of the vaccine and, and whether or not we should go ahead and, and have um, these other things, and there should be absolutely no, no support for journalists for Big Pharma. One of the big problems with what we saw was the guy gets on CNN and he talks about how terrible the pandemic is, and on the bottom it says, sponsored by Pfizer. We don't let tobacco companies do that. We shouldn't let Big Pharma do that. And um, there should be no removal of liability protections. Everyone who administers these vaccines from the person in the lab who is working to develop the original vaccine right through to the public health nurse who is injecting it in the arm of the person should be liable if it can be proven that they did something where they neglected someone or they did something that was unsafe. No liability protection. This vaccine would never have been distributed if every single person in the chain was liable. 
there are no excuses. There were pandemic protocols that were set in place and they had a long and successful history behind them. They were abandoned. The ethical protections of us as individuals were in place. They were all ignored. Now, Dr. Brett Weinstein had a very interesting podcast and he said a coup has taken place in Western nations. And I think he's right. Something happened in public health so that they just took over and they brought in rules and regulations and they violated our rights and the government cooperated and I don't know what happened and I don't know who the bad guys are. I have my suspicions, but public health is now an oxymoron. And I'm gonna close just with this picture of my family. This was one of the happiest days of my life. My middle son married his beautiful wife who has become a major part of our family. We're standing together, we're all cuddled up, we're smiling, we don't have masks on. It was a wonderful, wonderful event. And I would just like to remind everybody that we were robbed of this. Our weddings, our funerals, they were taken away from us without a good reason. My family is lucky, at least so far, no one has died in my family from the vax. Lots of people have lost people to the vax. We were robbed, and I don't know for sure who it is who is responsible for this robbery, but in my opinion, it is a crime against humanity and should be treated as such. Thank you, Ms. Bjorklund-Gordon. I just had one question. I'll try to keep it brief because okay. I'm sure the commissioners might have some questions. Um, just about the, the data from Alberta that you had brought up on the slides. Right. Um, from my understanding, the data that's presented here uh, occurred right when the so-called Delta wave Yes. Um, uh, my daughter had her vax in um, August late August, I think it was, and um, that was when the reaction came and I began looking and trying to dig this up and finding it. It was on the Alberta website for about a year. It was, you had to scroll way down to find it, and, and then when Joey Smalley put his first analysis up and people began asking questions, um, that, then it vanished. Oh, and there's another thing that vanished. Just yesterday I noticed when I was doing my presentation, I was hoping to be able to um, refresh my memory on the um, Medical Association of Canada's ethical standards. Um, in 2018, they were updated and I read that with great interest and I went back and looked so I could refresh my memory and make sure I was remembering correctly. And they have also removed their ethical standards from their website. Okay, what I was getting at there with the data was that there was a, a notable increase in the, the cases that were being reported of COVID in the Delta wave. Yes. And that appears to have coincided with when the vaccines were rolled out? Yes, I'm, I'm not sure because I don't have access to the data, but it seems to me that Delta was generally acknowledged to be far, far worse than the previous one. I wonder if all or some portion of that Delta was in fact adverse vaccine reactions, not the virus. I don't have any way to tell, but I think that that is something that really needs to be investigated.
I think th those are all the questions I had. I'll turn it over to the commissioners. Thank you so much for sharing your testimony with us today. Uh, I just wanted, was hoping you could help me understand a little bit better about this 14-day rule that you described in the Alberta data. Um, the way it works, uh, this data that they show here on, on my slide, uh, if we can pull that slide up again, um, the rule is that the explanation of the rule that I have been heard from public health is that when you have the vaccine, you don't actually begin producing protective antibodies at a high enough quantity to be considered immune to the virus. And so for that 14-day period, you are considered to be an unvaccinated person for the purposes of public health. So the zero to 14-day rule means that if someone gets sick and ends up in the hospital and they have a COVID test, which could be a false positive, um, they will be counted by public health as being unvaccinated, not vaccinated. So just to make sure I'm really clear. Okay. So when the health authorities were reporting COVID cases in unvaccinated people, it included people who had been vaccinated yes. in the prior 13 days? Yes, that's correct. Okay. And in fact, um, there's a statistician um, epidemiologist in England who challenged the UK data on the basis of that. Uh, the UK has um, a commission that's responsible for overseeing and um, double-checking uh, when a uh, government agency releases data and he complained to this agency i'm trying to remember who the Cana there's a canadian group that oversees the government and puts reports out regularly um, when the government is doing something naughty um, they have in, in the uk they have one specifically for statistics and he complained to them about this and they examined this zero to 14 day rule and decided that this was causing um, the data for the UK to be totally muddied and useless and the um, UK health services were ordered to go back and fix it. And after they went back and fixed it and the data came out, it showed very clearly that the more vaccinated you were, the more likely you were to get COVID or the more likely you were to have a severe reaction to COVID. And I think that um, Probably, if it were not for that 14-day rule, zero to 21 days for BC and Alberta, the Canadian data would show the same thing, but that's my opinion, and I don't know. Thank you. Yes. Thank you very much. I have a couple of questions, because I've heard um, quite a bit of testimony about various things that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. The first thing that I wanted to ask about and be clear in my own mind about is the PCR testing. And I believe you said that you were surprised that that would be used for a diagnostic tool. Yeah. Now, now you also talked about cycles. And I just want to confirm, one of the previous uh, testimonies was from Dr. Braden. And I asked her this question about cycles. And essentially, she explained it to me that if you go from 17 to 44, or sorry, let's make the numbers easy. If you go from 20 cycles to 40 cycles, that's not just a doubling of the, of the material. It's, it's, it's a logarithmic. Right. So that if I, if I had one particle when I started and I went through 44 cycles, I would theoretically have 2 times 10 to the 44. In other words, 2 
with 44 zeros behind it, particles after 44 cycles. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Because the DNA is double-stranded, it is um, opened up in part of the cycle, and then each of the double strands gets another strand built on it, and then it's cooled so that the two double strands form, and then it's cycled by heat again, and those two open up and become four, and then four becomes eight, and then eight becomes, and, and it, it, it is an exponential increase. And that's one of the reasons why the more you cycle, the more dangerous it is, because the PCR is not perfect. It, there are, are always a certain number of errors that are incorporated, and you can very rapidly end up with a false result because of the errors that not only get incorporated, but get magnified with each round of the cycle. I've heard the PCR test referred to as a genetic photocopier. Is that yeah. somewhat? Yeah, um, more than a photocopier. Um, <laughs> I kind of think of it as if your fax machine gets stuck and it keeps sending you the same thing over and over and over again, that's kind of what PCR is. Now, I also heard another testimony that I think you, hopefully I get this terminology right, and I would like you to explain to me, okay. because when I heard previous testimony, it, 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 I, I wasn't sure I got it right. You used the term reverse transcription right. of RNA to DNA. Yes. Can you explain that in, in, in lay terms for me, and why is that such a concern? Okay. The um, normal course, the way it usually works in the cell, is you start out with the DNA, and the DNA is transcribed into messenger RNA. The messenger RNA is then moved outside the nucleus of the cell into the main body of the cell. And when it's out there, it's then used as a code to create a protein. So you have this one-way trip up through the system. Um, Reverse transcription refers to mRNA that is in the cell body itself that then ends up being pushed back into the nucleus and then incorporated into the DNA. And then the repair, the normal repair mechanisms, and there are several different ways it can happen, but the normal response of the cell when hitting this piece of mRNA that's in the wrong place and isn't properly marked is to copy it and stick it into the DNA. And the reason that that is potentially such a problem is like if you had this happen in the cells of your testes or your ovaries, you could introduce a mutation that would go down into subsequent generations. And that's the most dangerous thing you can do because you can change the genome of your offspring. And it can also go into other cells like, uh, for example, liver cells is where this has been demonstrated to happen from the mRNA. And cells that are rapidly dividing, like in a developing embryo, um, every time the cell divides, the nuclear membrane dissolves away to allow the cell division to take place. And during that part of the cell cycle, um, the cell is vulnerable to accidentally incorporating the um, mRNA that's present into the DNA. So under normal conditions of cell division, all of that protein production is first stopped. And then the nucleus is dissolved and then the DNA is divided, and then it's, the nucleus reforms, and only after the nucleus reforms, the, um, the cell continues that process of making proteins. So the other issue with reverse transcription, and I think this may play a role in causing cancer, 
is if you have an insertion occur in the wrong part of a gene, you can turn a good gene into a bad gene, or you can turn a gene that prevents cancer from functioning. Uh, you can cause breaks in the DNA, and if you look at what causes cancer, it's cells that are expressing inappropriate proteins at the wrong time and in the wrong place, and doing the cells are doing things that are wrong. And when you randomly start inserting bits of DNA into the wrong place, you can cause very serious problems. So this reverse transcription is potentially quite dangerous. Um, there are viruses that do it deliberately and they have specific enzymes for doing that. But it can happen for other reasons, not just for that reason. So that was one of the reasons I did not understand why they went with an mRNA virus. Like why not just use you know, take the virus and inactivate it and grind it up and throw little bits in. That's, that's the way we've always done viruses. That works very well. Mm -hmm. And it's relatively low risk. So why, why did they do this other thing? So, so essentially, if I can put it into terms I understand or think right. I understand, the DNA is like the blueprints for other, for just about everything in your body. Right. And this reverse transcription is potentially or has the potential for changing that, that blueprint or that recipe or that plan. And with that change, potential change in that recipe or plan, the cells that are being built may be corrupted or they yes. might be something else. Yes, that's a very good way to think of it. Normally our bodies are very good at picking up if one of these things are going on and um, the cells will either stop dividing and sit there or they will release signals that indicate that something's gone wrong and the immune system will come in and destroy that cell, or they will begin affecting the cells next to them and those cells being affected will put out distress signals to the immune system to come and, and, and clean it up. But sometimes that doesn't happen. And one of the more frightening aspects of the COVID vaccine is that there appears to be immune suppression. So you get a situation where viruses that were inactive become active, the immune system is not scouting properly, and you have this mRNA being ending up in the cells and causing all kinds of problems, and the immune system is not cause responding appropriately. Uh, I've heard tales from pathologists who, of course, would never say so publicly, but they talk about turbo cancer. And that's a, a cancer that appears and spreads very rapidly, far more, and, and not in a characteristic fashion. And again, I don't know if that's true. I don't have access to the data. But I can understand how a turbo cancer could happen. There, there's um, some other terms that are almost ubiquitous. Or in other words, they're being talked about all the time. We had a witness yesterday who, who mentioned it. and. And, and I want to make sure that I understand this properly. Am I right in saying that when the government was telling us that we were going to get 97% efficacy, that they were talking about something called relative efficacy versus absolute efficacy? Right. Um, okay. And from other testimony when I've asked this question, it appears to me that if someone gives you a relative efficacy number, it gives you no idea of what your overall risk to that thing is. And I think someone compared it to two cars speeding down the highway at 300 kilometers an hour. The relative speed is zero, 
and their absolute speed is 300 kilometers an hour. So if I was to tell you the relative speed, you'd have no idea whether they were driving safely or not. That's correct, but I like to explain it differently. Imagine you have two groups of people, 100 in one group and 100 in the other. And one group is your case group and one group is your control group. And if just by random chance, three people get sick and two of them happen to be in your case group and one happens to be in your control group, you have a very high relative risk occurring in your case group because twice as many people got sick in your case group as in your control group. So you can say that's a very, very high relative risk. If you want to talk about absolute risk, you'd have to expose all 200 people to the virus and see then what your data would be. Yeah. Now, if you do your relative risk and you know 75% of the population has been exposed in both groups, your relative risk is going to be very similar to your absolute risk. But in a case like where Pfizer, I mean, they did some of their analyses while we were all under pandemic control conditions. And they did not specify what the infection rate was in the populations that they were looking at. And so there's absolutely no way to know if this like 95% or 97% or whatever it was, was a, a real value that had any real meaning. And normally, except if you're dealing with big pharma, you will be quoted an absolute risk or you will be quoted a relative risk and they will put after that 97% RR or AR and they'll specify what, what it is that you've got, and then they didn't do that. Big Pharma generally doesn't. So if I understand your example, where you talked about 100 people in one group and 100 people in the next, and you got so many sick in one and so many sick in the other, if I was to increase that sample size to 10 million in each group, right. and I still had your number, I think it was three sick in one and six sick in the other, right. my relative my relative efficacy in the 10 million sample is the same as the relative efficacy in the 100 sample, but of course the absolute efficacy has changed significantly because in the first one I had 100 people in the group and one got sick, 100 people in the other group and two got sick, so relative efficacy of 50%. If I, but, it, but if I increase it to 10 million people in each of the group and have one again that's sick in one group and two sick in the other group, still a relative efficacy of the same number. Yeah. And did, 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 in your opinion, did the general public understand that difference? My experience has been that many physicians don't understand that difference. <laughs> so <laughs> I, 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 would, I would not expect the general public to understand that difference. Okay. Um, you did talk about informed consent. Yes. Based on what we just talked about, did folks who didn't, who were told that it had a 97% or a 98% efficacy, did, did, were they able to form informed consent on that basis? It's my opinion that they were lied to. Let me ask you another question. Did they do testing? You, you looked at the, um, the Pfizer results, or the yes. Pfizer testing that was submitted to Health Canada? Yes. Did they do testing on pregnant women? No. Did they do testing on children? As far as I know, no. Did they inject pregnant women in Manitoba with the vaccines? Yes. They, in fact, they made it so mandatory that a friend of mine who refused to take the vax was told by her doctor that he would not attend her delivery 
and um, she and her husband made a decision that they would deliver the baby at home. It was her fourth. It was an uncomplicated pregnancy. But the labor started four weeks before her due date, so they became concerned that um, they might be dealing with a preemie, and they decided she should deliver in the hospital. And um, when she arrived in the ambulance bay in labor, no one from the obstetrics and gynecology department at that hospital where she was at would come downstairs and treat her because they said she was unvaxxed and they didn't want anything to do with her. So she sat in the ambulance bay for 30 minutes and finally delivered, having a paramedic attend her, while her husband sat outside in the parking lot trying to follow on a cell phone. The pressure on pregnant women was extreme and totally unethical. You, they were told they must have this vaccine or I will not attend your your delivery. You must have this vaccine or else your husband won't be able to be with you when the baby's born. I think I heard you say that there was no fertility testing on this vaccine. As far as I know, no one has looked at the fertility in this vaccine, but they did know well before the vaccine was even released um, to the public that the vaccine was accumulating in the ovaries and testes and rat tests that they did in Japan. So was they as far as I know, there's been no testing done to see if fertility's been affected. I have heard anecdotal reports from people in the in vitro community that um, they're, they're having an increase, they're seeing an increase in infertility in women who previously had successful pregnancies, but that's anecdotal, and again, I have no way of knowing if that is actually factual or not. Prior to the release of the vaccine and based on your review of the, of the information, was there any carcinogenity testing? In other words, did they do any testing to see if this may or may not cause cancer? No. And one of the things they did is they cut the testing short after two months and declared that it was safe. And cancer takes years to develop. Normally, even turbo cancer takes months to develop. Um, they cut it off at two months. There's absolutely no way that they could have done any kind of, um, had any ideas about testing. They did some rat work, I think, but rats are very different physiologically from humans, and just because you get a result in rats, you know, it doesn't mean that that applies to humans. And I don't know, I'm not familiar, I could be wrong because I haven't seen everything. It's, there's been a lot of literature. I read somewhere that was at one point there was 700 publications a day coming out on this topic. So speaking from what I personally have seen and bearing in mind that there is stuff that I have not seen, I am not aware of any testing that was done on fertility or, or cancer. We had a previous witness um, describe to us the initial testing or the testing that was submitted to Health Canada for the Pfizer vaccine. And, what that witness described to us was that they had a control group or a placebo group and they had a, a, a second group. And after the close of two months, they took the placebo group and injected them with the vaccine, thereby eliminating the placebo group after two months of testing. Yes, I understand it, that's correct. Is that, is that common practice? It's common practice for biochemical, bio, big pharma type people to do stuff like that it would not be appropriate practice as I understand it. And I don't know how the regulators let that go. As far as I can tell, and I wasn't in the room when this was done, Health Canada did no independent testing of their own. They simply accepted what was being done in the United States as gospel. Did I hear you right in the beginning um, when you were talking about your credentials that you had taught or, 
or um, tutored uh, medical people, uh, students on medical ethics? Yes. I worked, in the work I was in, um, we had the medical students would be broken up into small group um, small groups for tutorials of about 12 or 15 students and one of us would each take one of those groups and we would be presenting them with a specific case um, and it often included an ethical component that they had to discuss with us and then they had to understand all of the aspects medically speaking as far as how this gene worked and so forth but they also had to understand uh, the treatment proposals and how those would impact and what kind of ways that um, that they could provide informed consent and treatment. We do practice a form of ethics in Canada right now, and I'm not talking about um, MAID. I'm talking about if you have a woman who has a baby who has a specific defect of some sort, uh, she can go and talk to her doctor and um, under normal circumstances that I saw when I was involved in human genetics and when I attended clinics, women would be given all the information that we had. There's a 70% probability of this or a 20% probability of that. And then the women would make a choice as to whether to terminate the pregnancy or not. And some of us, myself included, are very much against termination of pregnancy, but we, we remained absolutely silent about what our personal opinion was and sometimes a woman would say, um, I don't, I, I, I'm going to have the baby anyway. And we might think she was crazy, but we never said anything against her, and we would support her through that. And one of the most valuable lessons I learned watching that was, you know, sometimes a mother would come in and say, there's something wrong with this baby, I can feel it. And every test we had would show there was nothing wrong with the baby, but she'd go on and give birth, and there would be something wrong, something desperately wrong. And other times we would say, there's this or that problem with the baby, and, and, and she would say, no, this baby's fine, and she would go through with the pregnancy anyway, and the baby would be born, and the baby would be fine. And to me, that illustrates why informed consent is so important, because we as experts, we don't always know everything. And sometimes the gut intuition of some farm wife with a grade 10 education is better than what we experts think. Anyway, that's why informed consent is so important. You give them all the information and they make the decision as to what the right thing is to do. And that was what was missing during the pandemic. My last question has to do with your family. And, right. and I believe you reported out of the six, four had adverse reactions. Yes, four had adverse Were reactions. Were any of those four adverse reactions reported to and included in the CAFIS system in Canada? No. My son's tumor has been dismissed by the neurologist in his care as being irrelevant uh, and not in any way related to the VAX. Uh, the family member who developed pericarditis, it was more than 28 days, so it's considered unrelated. My daughter's situation was recorded as um, COVID in the unvaccinated. And one of my relatives had um, long COVID and repeat multiple COVID infections. And in her case, it's been attributed to the virus, not the vaccine. Were those decisions to attribute it to the virus done at the upper level of that system or were they triaged by the doctor that you were dealing with or the nurse? It was always done by the doctor or the nurse and 
part of the problem is that there's tremendous pressure on members of the medical community to not notice these adverse reactions. And doctors who report too many get in trouble. And they, they don't want to see it. And the other thing is I've talked about the brainwashing and the, the reflexive reaction out of the medical community. I think that the medical community has been more heavily brainwashed and targeted and hit with this stuff than the general public. And they don't want to see it. Mm -hmm. And if you take the case of the pericarditis in my family, the doctor involved acknowledged that it was probably the vaccine, but there was no way he was going to speak up about it.